This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the second portion of Chapter 6 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. This podcast will cover Section 6.2, which is all about the electromagnetic field tensor. This section begins on page 171 of the text. In order to understand the electromagnetic field tensor, it's important that you first have some understanding of Maxwell's equations and special relativity. So this section starts out with a brief review of the most important concepts within Maxwell's equations, after which there's another brief review of the important concepts of special relativity, after which we will get into the electromagnetic field tensor. I'll do two things with that field tensor. One is to show how you can derive Maxwell's equations from that tensor, and I'll show how that tensor can be used to determine that the field strengths of electric and magnetic fields depend on the motion of the observer. As I said, this section starts on page 171. There's an introductory paragraph which talks about the importance of Maxwell's equations, especially in today's world of wideband telecommunications. Then at the top of page 172, you'll see a listing of the four equations that make up Maxwell's equations. Those are Gauss's law for electric fields, Gauss's law for magnetic fields, Faraday's law, and the Ampere-Maxwell law. Now, if you've studied any electricity and magnetism, you probably realize that there are both integral and differential forms of these equations. It's the differential forms that are most relevant to vectors and tensors. Those forms utilize many of the vector operations talked about in chapters 1 and 2, and it's the differential forms that you can derive easily once you have the electromagnetic field tensor. The four Maxwell's equations are written out in the middle of page 172, and then each one is rewritten inside a box, and there's a short explanatory paragraph about each of the laws. In the lower half of page 172, you see the first one. It says del dot E is equal to rho over epsilon naught. And that means that the divergence of the electric field at any location in space is proportional to the density of electric charge at that exact location. That's because del dot means divergence. E represents the electric field. Rho represents the charge density. And epsilon naught is the permittivity of free space, which is the constant of proportionality. If you track the electric field discussion in Chapter 3, this should make some sense to you because you know that the divergence of the electric field has to do with the outward flow of electric field lines. You also know that positive charge serves as the source for those electric field lines. That is, all electrostatic field lines begin on positive charge and end on negative charge. So if rho in Gauss's law for the electric field is positive, the electric field has positive divergence at that point, meaning the electric field diverges from that point. And if rho is negative, it means the divergence is negative, which means the electric field lines converge on that point. The bottom of page 172, you see Gauss's law for the magnetic field, which is del dot B is equal to zero, which means that the magnetic field always has zero divergence. That must be true because as far as we've been able to determine, there is no such thing as an isolated magnetic charge on which these field lines could begin or end. So magnetic field lines circulate around and around, and they do not converge or diverge. At the top of page 173, you see Faraday's law, which says del cross E is equal to negative the partial of B with respect to T, 
which simply means the curl of the electric field at any location is equal to the negative time rate of change of the magnetic field at that point. This is an electric field that behaves very differently from the electric field produced by electric charge because charge-based electric fields, which are also called electrostatic fields, diverge from locations of positive charge and converge upon locations of negative charge. But this field circulates around. It has a curl. And the amount of circulating electric field is determined by how fast the magnetic field at that location is changing. The negative sign in that equation just has to do with the direction of the electric field relative to the direction of the changing magnetic field. A little farther down on page 173, you see the last of the four Maxwell equations. This is Ampere's law, but it's been modified by James Clerk Maxwell. It says del cross B is equal to mu zero J plus mu zero epsilon naught times the partial of E with respect to T. What that means is that the curl of the magnetic field, that is a magnetic field that circles around, can be produced by either, or perhaps both, of two different sources. Those sources are the two terms on the right side of the equation. First one, proportional to J, that J represents the current density at the location, and the constant of proportionality is mu zero, which is called the magnetic permeability of free space. The second term tells you that a circulating magnetic field may also be produced by a changing electric field. That's the partial of E with respect to T. And in this case, both mu naught and epsilon naught appear. That is both the magnetic permeability and the electric permittivity. Product of those two terms makes up the constant of proportionality in this case. So in each of these four equations, you see the spatial behavior of the fields, converging or diverging or circulating around, related to the sources of the fields. Those sources may be electric charge with density rho, electric current with density j, or a changing electric or magnetic field. There's one additional equation that's useful when you're trying to characterize electromagnetic interactions, and that's the continuity equation, which is written just below the center of page 173. It says the partial of rho with respect to time is equal to negative del dot j. The paragraph after that explains that briefly, simply saying the partial of rho with respect to t is the change in the density of electric charge at a given location. Well, if the density is changing at some location, it must be because more electric charge is flowing into that location than is flowing out of it. That's what the right side has to do with, which is the divergence of the current density. If that divergence is positive, there's more charge being carried away than being carried into the location, and the change in density with respect to time is negative, which is why there's a negative sign on the right side of that equation. On the other hand, if del dot j is negative, that is, if the divergence itself is negative, that means the charge is converging on that point. So if the del dot j is negative, that additional negative sign makes it positive, and it says the density of charge will increase at that location. Before getting on to special relativity, there's one more aspect of Maxwell's equations that's worth talking about, and that is that you can apply some of the vector operators from Chapter 2 to certain of Maxwell's equations and derive a propagating wave equation from them. The first of those is shown at the bottom of page 173, where I've just taken the curl of both sides of Faraday's law. Again, Faraday's law is that first equation at the top of page 173 in the box. If I take the curl of both sides of that equation, then use the expression for the curl of B from the Ampere-Maxwell law, I get equation 610. And equation 610 says del squared E 
is equal to mu naught epsilon naught times the second partial of E with respect to time. By the way, I'm going to do a similar operation for the magnetic field. If you're having trouble seeing how to get to equation 610 or 611 from Maxwell's equations, look at the problems at the end of the chapter and the online solutions. They'll give you a hand. On the top of page 174, it explains that del squared in this case is a vector form of the Laplacian operator, and that you can get a similar equation for B by taking the curl of both sides of the Ampere-Maxwell law and then inserting curl E from Faraday's law. That leads to equation 611. The reason these equations are important is that when you compare them to the general equation for a propagating wave, which is written on page 174 in equation 612, you'll notice something very interesting. The general equation says del squared A, where A represents the vector field that is propagating, is equal to 1 over V squared times the second partial of A with respect to time. Compare that 1 over v squared term to equations 610 and 611. As it says in the paragraph following equation 612, you'll see that mu naught epsilon naught, the permeability times the permittivity of free space, must play the role of 1 over v squared. You can derive the velocity of the waves simply by knowing the permittivity and permeability of free space. That works out to be 3 times 10 to the 8th meters per second, the speed of light. Well, the fact that the electric and magnetic field wave equations contain the speed of light within them has had some very important consequences in the history of physics. For one thing, it helped Maxwell realize that light is an electromagnetic phenomenon. It is made up of bundled electric and magnetic fields. But it also had very great influence on Albert Einstein because he was very intrigued by the idea that the speed of electromagnetic waves is determined totally by these two parameters, the permeability and permittivity of free space, and nowhere in these equations does the relative velocity between the observer and the source come into play. So as it says in the middle of page 174, this put Einstein onto the path that led to the theory of special relativity. If you're solid on special relativity, you can probably skip forward at this point to the middle of page 176, but if you need a little bit of a review, that's given in the next few pages. It starts off by reminding you that the two postulates that Einstein held on to, even when they led to counterintuitive conclusions, were that the laws of physics must be the same in all non-accelerating frames of reference, and that the speed of light in a vacuum is a constant and does not depend on the motion of either the source or the motion of the observer. Some of the consequences of that are described on the bottom of page 174, the important one being that space and time are not separate but are linked together into a four-dimensional space-time, and it's the space-time interval that is invariant across inertial reference frames. That's explained a bit further on the bottom of page 174 and on page 175, where figure 6-5 shows two reference frames, one primed and one unprimed, and the primed reference frame is moving along the unprimed x-axis with a velocity v. Using traditional physics, that is Galilean relativity, in order to determine what an observer in the prime coordinate system would see relative to an observer in the unprime coordinate system, you see the equations in the middle of page 175. T prime equals T, that is time is the same in both systems. X prime is equal to X minus VT. Remember, the prime system is moving along the positive x-axis with velocity V. Y prime equals Y, and Z prime equals Z. But if that's the correct transformation between coordinates, then Einstein's second postulate, that the speed of light in a vacuum is constant and does not depend on the motion of the observer, doesn't work. So we need a different transform between the unprimed and the primed coordinate systems, and that turns out to be the Lorentz transform. Before talking about that, at the bottom of page 175 and the top of page 176, 
you see a little discussion about a pulse of light that is radiating outward from a certain location and what two observers would see. By keeping the speed of light the same for both those observers, we get an idea of how to properly combine space and time. And you can see at the top of page 176 that the time term and the space terms have opposite signs. I've chosen to assign the negative signs to the spatial terms and the positive to the time. Some authors do it the other way. Both will give you correct answers as long as you're consistent in making either the space terms or the time term negative. In the middle of page 176, there are a set of equations showing how we're going to use index notation here, where we call our zeroth coordinate x0ct. There has to be a c in there because we're trying to take time and combine it with space. So just think about the dimensions. That c is a speed, which has dimensions of length over time. And when you multiply that by t, which of course has dimensions of time, the time dimensions cancel and you get length. Then we just assign the indices 1, 2, 3 to x, y, and z, respectively. So when we write the square of our space-time interval, ds, we get the equation shown just below the middle of page 176, which says ds squared is equal to dx0 squared minus dx1 squared minus dx2 squared minus dx3 squared. Then at the bottom of page 176, you can see the Lorentz transformation. This is the transformation between the unprimed and the primed coordinate system that does lead to consistent results when you hold the speed of light to be constant. You see the four equations for x0 prime, x1, x2, x3 prime, and in those equations, beta is just the ratio of the magnitude of v over c, that is the speed of the observer divided by the speed of light, and gamma is 1 over the square root of 1 minus beta squared. At the top of page 177, you can see the space-time interval, ds squared, written out using the metric tensor, where it shows g sub alpha beta times dx superscript alpha, dx superscript beta, where the metric tensor is the so-called Minkowski metric for flat space-time. The matrix that represents that tensor is shown near the middle of page 177. Notice again the difference in sign between the time and the space terms. Holding the space-time interval invariant led to some very interesting and, as I said earlier, counterintuitive conclusions. And those are shown just below the middle of page 177. The first is called length contraction, and it says that an observer sees lengths in another reference frame, moving with respect to the observer's reference frame, as being contracted along the direction of motion. The second is called time dilation, which says that that same observer measures time in the moving reference frame to run more slowly. So with these two conclusions, Einstein was saying that our perceptions of time and space as absolute are not correct. The length you measure for an object and the amount of time you measure between events depends on your state of motion. The third result, called relativity of simultaneity, says there is no universal now. That is, an observer in one reference frame will not agree with an observer in a different moving reference frame as to whether two events are simultaneous. There's only one more concept that you need to understand before we get to the electromagnetic field strength tensor, and that's discussed at the bottom of page 177. And it says that we want to write our physical laws in ways that are manifestly covariant. That is, in a way that the law takes the same form in all reference frames, because the quantities involved in those laws will transform between reference frames in very predictable ways. Now we know going in that certain quantities must be invariant between reference frames. 
For example, the amount of charge present at a location must be a scalar. It must be invariant between reference frames because we can count charge like we count integers and integers don't vary between reference frames. We also know that Maxwell's equations and the Lorentz force law, that is, force is equal to QE plus QV cross B, must be true in all inertial reference frames. That says we're going to need a four-vector version of the Lorentz force law, and we can do that by defining a four-vector called the four-current, and that's written as the last equation on page 177. And there you see that the four-current, J, is defined not just with Jx, Jy, Jz, but also with C times rho, the stationary electric charge density. With that definition for four-current, we're able to get the tensor version of Maxwell's equations very readily from the electromagnetic field tensor, and the matrix representing the components of that tensor is shown on the top of page 178. I won't read off all the terms, you can see it there, as equation 613. And notice that this is the doubly contravariant form of the electromagnetic field strength tensor, which is why it's written as F superscript alpha beta. Notice that in this matrix, the first row and the first column involve the electric field, the diagonal elements are all zero, and the elements in the second, third, and fourth rows and columns involve the components of the magnetic field. There is also a covariant version of this tensor. You can find that by using the metric tensor to lower the indices of equation 613. If you do that, you should get equation 614. Notice that this one is written F subscript alpha beta. This is the doubly covariant form of the electromagnetic field strength tensor. One more version is also going to be useful, and that's shown in equation 615. This is called the dual contravariant electromagnetic field tensor, and it's written using the German script F. Since it's doubly contravariant, it's written with superscript alpha beta. Okay, with the components of these three tensors available from the matrices in equations 613, 614, and 615, we can express all of Maxwell's equations using just two tensor equations. Those are shown as equations 616 and 617 near the bottom of page 178. Notice in the first, it's the partial derivative of the contravariant electromagnetic field strength tensor on the left side, and on the right side, the magnetic permeability of free space and the elements of the four current J. In 617, it's the partial derivative of the dual contravariant electromagnetic field strength tensor, and the right side in that case is zero. Now you may look at those two equations and say, okay, but where are Maxwell's equations in these? Well, it takes just a little bit of math to get all four of Maxwell's equations. As it says on the bottom of page 178, start out by taking beta equals zero in equation 616. When you do that, you get the very last equation on page 178. Notice I've simply substituted zero where beta formerly existed. Now you have to notice that on the left side of this equation, you have an alpha, both in the numerator and the denominator. That counts as the same index as a superscript and subscript, and that means that's a dummy index. You have to sum over alpha. That's done on the top of page 179, where I've also substituted in the relevant elements of the electromagnetic field strength tensor. So you see the partial derivatives on the first equation on the top of page 179, and when you take those derivatives and substitute one over the product of epsilon naught mu naught for c squared, you get the equation that the partial of e sub x with respect to x, plus the partial of e sub y with respect to y, plus the partial of e sub z with respect to z, is equal to rho over epsilon naught, or recognizing those partials as the divergence the divergence of E is equal to rho over epsilon naught. That's just Gauss's law for the electric field. So by taking the first equation of our two tensor equations and setting beta equal to zero, we're able to get Gauss's law for electric fields. 
The Ampere-Maxwell law also comes about in a very straightforward way, except in this case, we're going to set beta equal to 1, 2, and 3, still using equation 616. You'll see in the middle of the page what those derivatives look like, and notice that on the right side, we've simply got the components of the four current. Again, you just have to plug in the elements of the electromagnetic field strength tensor, sum over alpha, and you get the three equations shown at the bottom of page 179. Those involve partials of the magnetic field components on the left side and the components of the four current and the partial of the electric field with respect to time on the right side. But if you look back in chapter two at the definition of curl, you'll see that the left side in this case is simply the curl of B. And if we put the terms on the right side into vector notation, we get the equation on the top of page 180. There it says the curl of B is mu zero J plus mu zero epsilon naught times the partial of E with respect to T. That's the Ampere-Maxwell law. So we've now gotten two of Maxwell's equations from the first of our tensor equations. As you might have guessed, we're going to get the other two, that is Gauss's law for magnetic fields and Faraday's law, using the second of our tensor equations, that is equation 617, back on page 178. And we're going to proceed in almost the same way. First, we take beta equals zero, plug in the relevant elements of the dual electromagnetic field tensor, sum over alpha, and we get del dot B equals zero. The divergence of the magnetic field is zero, which is, of course, Gauss's law for magnetic fields. And exactly as before, we now set beta equal to 1, 2, and 3, plug into equation 617, and we get the three equations shown at the bottom of page 180. By rearranging those a little bit, you can get those into the form shown on the top of page 181. And again, recognizing the curl, this tells you that the curl of E is equal to negative the partial of B with respect to time. That is, of course, Faraday's law. So we've accomplished the first of the two useful things I mentioned about the electromagnetic field tensor. The other useful thing I mentioned is to understand how different observers will measure electric and magnetic fields when one of those observers is in a reference frame that's moving with respect to the other. As I mentioned earlier, we can't use the simple Galilean transform for this. We have to use the Lorentz transform, and I've written that out in equation 618, which we can then use in order to transform the electromagnetic field strength tensor to the moving or prime coordinate system. You can see how to do that right after equation 618, where I've written the tensor F prime is equal to A, the Lorentz transform matrix, times F times the transpose of A. This is a form of the similarity transform mentioned in the previous section, and you can read more about that in the peripheral material on the book's website. At the bottom of page 181, I plug in A and F and A transpose, and then I did the multiply in two steps on the top of page 182 first multiplying the center matrix by the right, and then multiplying that by the left matrix, to where I finally get F prime, as shown in the middle of page 182. I apologize that this didn't fit on one line, so this is a little hard to look at, but if you compare this with equation 613, back on page 178, you'll notice some interesting results. I've written those as equations 619 and 620 on the bottom of page 182. First of all, it says E sub X prime is equal to E sub X. That means the X component of the electric field is the same in both the moving or prime coordinate system and in the stationary or unprime coordinate system. But E Y prime is equal to C gamma times the quantity E sub Y over C minus beta B Z. So notice that the Y component of the electric field in the moving coordinate system depends not only on the electric field in the stationary or unprimed coordinate system, it depends on one of the magnetic field components as well. Likewise for E sub Z prime. 
And when you look at equation 620, you'll notice something similar for the magnetic field. That is, when one reference frame is moving along the x-axis of the other, b sub x prime is equal to b sub x, but b sub y prime and b sub z prime both depend not only on by and bz, but also on components of the electric field. If that's not clear what that means, you should take a look at the top of page 183. This says that whether you as an observer measure any electric or magnetic field at all depends on your motion. And there are a couple of examples here on the top of page 183 as to how that might work. In the first case, I take EX and EY and EZ all equal to zero. That is, there is no electric field in the unprimed coordinate system. But in this case, one or more components of B are non-zero, so there is a magnetic field in the unprimed coordinate system. Thus, an observer in the unprimed system sees a magnetic field, but no electric field. But when you look at equations 619 and 620, you'll see that an observer in the prime coordinate system sees both electric and magnetic fields. So would you say that the electric field exists or does not exist? That depends on the motion of the observer. The next case, considered on page 183, takes the magnetic field to be zero in the unprimed coordinate system, but says that some electric field does exist there. Once again, when you transform to the moving or primed coordinate system, you see both electric and magnetic fields. If you don't see how that works out, take a look at the problems at the end of the chapter, because there are some examples of these. But the important concept for you to get from this is that the electric and magnetic fields do not have independent existence. That means independent of the motion of the observer. Whether you think an electric or magnetic field exists at all depends on your motion. And as it says in the last paragraph in this section, you can get a sense of how strong those fields are by working the problems at the end of the chapter. And don't forget, if you need help with that, the full solutions are available online.